This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Welcome to The Pupil Pod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Scylla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. D. Stevenson. Dr. Stevenson is a cataract, refractive, and complex anterior segment surgeon out of Venice, Florida, and I just learned today that she is soon to become a grandmother. Dr. Stevenson, thank you again for joining me today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Let's jump right into the case. So this is a 72-year-old woman who presents for evaluation of cataract surgery. She has a history of some eye infection, but doesn't really remember what it is. Her goals are to maintain the best quality of vision, glasses-free. On exam, her vision is 2060, and she bats to 2100. You note a faint mid-peripheral anterior stromal scar on the cornea and 2-plus NS. Her dilated fundus exam is otherwise unremarkable, but biometry shows two diopters of astigmatism. Now, Dr. Stevenson, could you walk us through your standard cataract preoperative planning and evaluation? Sure. And, you you know, the thing is about when I think about a cataract patient, no matter who the patient is, I really want to start at the front of the eye and go to the back of the eye and everybody and not skip a part because once you feel like can you skip over on something, then you get burned for not covering it. So the the first thing about this patient is, you know, an eye infection of some sort and having a corneal scar. Now, this is a peripheral scar, uh, anterior stromal, you know, did she have herpes zoster simplex, you know, um, is the astigmatism irregular or regular? So those are things that, you know, make me first want to look at the ocular surface and whether the, the lids and lashes and my bovine gland dysfunction and, and tear breakup time and and, you know, and the endothelium, what her endothelium looks like. Does she have iris atrophy from a zoster? You know, does she have findings that make you think that this was much more serious than just an eye infection? Because corneal scars can be very nominal or they can be very um, important because if it was herpes zoster simplex, she would certainly be put on a PO antiviral long before she has cataract surgery. So in my practice, I'm a, a, a boutique practice. So mo- about 85, 87% of my patients are premium uh, patients. However, I do the same thing for all patients. And, you know, always look at the corneal surface, look at the, the health of the skin and the, and, the, and the lids and lashes are so important, you know, and whether they have rosacea. But, you know, I always, I get biometry, a good slit lamp exam always, but, you know, biometry with the IL Master 700 is my go-to biometry. I do a Cassini um, topographer, um, which Bluetooths to my um, Lensar. However, the nice thing about Cassini is they have a video capability. So what this video does is it, it does, um, 
it shows a pattern and of tear breakup time, you actually see the patients blink. So you can tell where the dry spots are on their cornea. So you're already attuned to if they have dry, and then you can actually see it and show it to the patient. I, I actually also do an eye trace because it gives me a lot of information, whether it's corneal, you know, and you can show the patient themselves. You look at the cornea as an entity on its own. You look at the lens as an entity on its own, and then you can add those together. And you're looking at a big E so you can see if the cornea is fine and that scar is not in the way of your of her visual axis, then you know not to worry about it. If it's the lens and the, you know, if they've had LASIK, not this patient, not, but if they've had LASIK, you can say your LASIK hasn't worn out. You have a dysfunctional lens and your, your cataract is causing the problem. And then you can look at what their image is at the end. I also do, uh, I'm really big on looking at my Bohmian gland dysfunction. I look at mammography and, um, you know, tear, tear check. And I do the, um, the testing on the, uh, tear breakup time as well. And it's a, it's not subjective. You're not counting one, two, it actually measures the tear breakup time. So it's really a nice function. And then you can treat them preoperatively and then bring them back and actually show them like a report card that it's improved. So I think those are all really important things. Um, you know, OCT on, um, on all patients, I think is re really important. The difference is you can charge a patient if they have diagnosis. And for me, if I think about where I started 33 years ago and my naked eye looking at an, a macula, I cannot see what an OCT brings out. And, you know, very subtle epiretinal membranes, you know, and it's common in 10% of patients over the age of 55 or 50. And you want to make sure that, you know, if you, if you find it and you tell them it's and something doesn't go well, it's not your fault. But if you didn't tell them and you didn't tell them that they had dry eye or my bone gland dysfunction, then it's your fault if their outcomes are not good. So that's kind of the basis of where I start with everybody. And, you know, how I counsel these patients is the same based on what their needs are. And, you know, realistically, if that scar is going to be a problem, then I don't think they're a candidate for a premium lens, a multifocal lens. You know, they may be, they may be a candidate for a toric lens or a monofocal lens and then later PRK for that area or, or do we take care of it first, you know, um, by doing uh, scraping and then, um, you know, um, putting a bandage contact lens or a, or a, a you know, one that's medicated, uh, ProClear, whatever it's called. I can't remember what the, the name of it is. I'm not sure. I don't use them that often. But, you know, you want to talk to them about, you know, spectacle independence. And they did say they want the best quality of vision and they like to be glasses free. And I always tell patients nothing is 100%. And if they have monofocal with readers, are they, will they be happy with that? You know, and most people are, if they can see far away and intermediate, a lot of these new monofocal lenses, how they sit in the eye, the Bosch Alom's MX6TEs, uh, ET and uh, Rainer's um, lens, and the new, well, the current 611P that Zeiss puts out and they're getting ready to release their 621 that gives uh, as two zones. And, you know, it's aspheric in the center and uh, positive, um, on the borderline, but it actually negates the peripheral part of the cornea. So they really get an extended depth of focus with a monofocal lens. So a lot of times that's, that answers itself. I'm not a big monovision per se. In my day, true monovision was like minus 250 in their non-dominant eye in Plano and their other patients cannot tolerate that. And the older they get, the harder that is for them. I do mini mono. A lot of these, um, especially if she gets a toric, you can do, uh, you know, do their non-dominant eye first, set them for like minus 50, uh, and then go for Plano or first click minus in their dominant eye. And they're really happy because they have a pretty good, in, especially in good lighting, a pretty good, dis, well, d excellent distance, 
pretty good intermediate, and a lot of them have near vision. So you, you want to under-promise and over-deliver. Really, you know, important about the corneal health and the retinal health if you're using trifocal lenses, um, lens tech uh, bifocal lens or the Clarion panoptics lens or technus, some of the symphonies and and the, you know, the Ihance, those are more EDOF lenses um, and Vividi. You want to make sure the health of their cornea is good again and because it can really take away their clarity and the quality of, the, they may be 2020, but they're 2020 unhappy because the quality of their vision isn't good. And, you know, so I think that's real important um, when, you're, when you're advising patients on lenses. Always the light adjustable lens is new in my practice, but I've been using it and it's, it's been wonderful, especially I'm getting younger and younger patients in their 50s, uh, 60s that want cataract surgery. They've got big pupils. They're not going to be happy with the aberrations that some of the multifocals cause. And, you know, so I think that they'd be much happier with a light adjustable lens. Absolutely. I think people are really excited about the light adjustable lens. And I think it's really important that you stressed how critical it is for us to assess the ocular surface yes, because it's just people so overlook it all the time, especially non-anterior segment people. You already touched on this a little bit, but for boards and OCAP purposes, what lenses cause kind of a higher risk of dysphotopsias? Obviously, we have negative dysphotopsias, which are the dark arcs that patients experience and usually more common with a smaller square edge design versus kind of those positive dysphotopsias where they see kind of halos or flares or arcs. And those are more common with a truncated square design and then in higher index materials. Are there any surgical pearls or lens designs that you think of to kind of minimize those risks? Right. Well, first of all, too, backing up to the original exams, look at the higher order aberrations on the cornea already. So make sure higher order aberrations that you already know that they have it or don't have it because you're only going to add to that problem. So safely, you can always put an aspheric lens in. And where you position the haptics, I think, helps if you do it in the horizontal meridian. I think it helps with the dysphotopsias. Um, if, you, if you want to optic capture, even if you think that the, the, the lens is just not sitting right in the bag and you don't want them to get that reflection from the bag not lining up with the, the optic, you can optic capture them. And, you know, anterior optic capture, posterior optic capture, whichever. And, and if you've violated the capsule, of course, the opposite, the, you, you know, capture the optic posteriorly. But I think that, you know, matching the corneal abnormalities to the implant is really important. So I think that the, the, these new monofocal lenses that are aspheric, I don't think you're going to chase. I think we, we've made a mistake, in my opinion, chasing whether it's minus or plus. I think we always should be aspheric. For two, you know, for several other reasons, as we're learning, and a lot of pathology doesn't come to to our, it's not apparent when we first do it, but when we get in the operating room, such as these great microscopes, now you're looking at the cornea and you see a reflection of guttata, and you weren't expecting that, or that you notice when the lens goes in that the it, it, you know it doesn't center correctly. So do, do they have a zonulopathy? So these aspheric lenses are much more forgiving if there's tilt or if there is decentration, the risk of, you know, it affecting their vision, first of all, and having symptoms of negative or positive dysphotopsias are, are less. So they're more forgiving lenses. So I think, you know, I think that's always, it should be a go-to lens. Some of these lenses are fabulous if they're perfectly centered in the visual axis. And I would like to say every one of my lenses, I line it up to the Purkinje images, the microscope, but it doesn't end up that way. And I'd be, being very untruthful if I said 
all eyes are created equal because they're not. And we learn it the hard way. We learn it when the patient complains. So those would be my pearls just to look at the higher aberrations first. And then, you know, and of course, if they're post-refractive, it's a whole nother story. Absolutely. And you, you use an aberometer on all of your patients? I, use, I have used Aura since I was the first um, person in the United States to have the wow. commercial use of it. Actually, I did it the week before Bill Wiley. And, Bill, and Bill Wiley's my hero. You know, I, he's, he, he's actually sat on the I'm phone sure with me. I'm sure you're his hero. And, and walked me through some unusual Aura. Back then it was orange, but I've used it. And, and you know, we've come so far with all of our, our formulas um, the Barrett, the, uh, you know, all of these great um, formulas and, and, and uh, you know, the um, ASCRS website has all of them and you can look at all of them. But our, 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 our I mean, our um, A-scans have them all in them pretty much. So we can usually pick whatever we want. But Aura is funny. It's different. It has the WTF factor. That's the wave tech factor. And it's factored in. It doesn't matter what formula you use to come up with your IOL. It has its own formula, so it measures everything and the posterior cornea as well, and it allows you to check it a second and third time when you're when the patient's already had their cataract removed. And if you pay attention to your incision, the cornea, keeping it moist, ridding it of viscoelastic, so when you're taking the reading, make sure the intraocular pressure is good. I really think it helps you. And for me, it only changes what I do. Maybe it maybe improves me one percent, but I'd rather be one percent better than one percent worse. So for me. I've learned how to use it and to manipulate it and, and, and when to trust it 100%, when not to trust it 100%. So it really adds, it doesn't add a whole lot of time, but it adds a lot of good for me. And I highly recommend the Aura, but you know, it's, it's got to be something you want to do. Absolutely. And shifting gears a little bit here, what about the astigmatism? How do you like to deal with astigmatism? We touched a little bit on toric lenses. What about patients that don't want to pay for a toric lens? Do you offer them LRIs? Well, I don't do any freehand LRIs any longer. I only do femto AIs. So I have a lesser package with a monofocal lens to take care of uh, astigmatism uh, against the rule or with the rule, depending um, whether you can do it with your incision and an L and one AI, or if you do a paired AI, and I do it um, about one and a half on the cornea with a with the my choices the lens are, and it has IntelliAxis, so it marks the CEPA axis, and and it you know and it marks you know that your AIs are right in line, and if you're using a toric lens, I anything over one and a quarter, but they have such low um, toric lenses now too because uh, BNL is plus one twenty five um, toric lens on the cornea point nine. And, you know, and I don't have a problem flipping my axis from with the rule to, or against the rule to with the rule. So I will treat three quarters of diopter of astigmatism with a toric lens and make, because my incision's at 12. I don't do temporal. I've just stayed at 12 because I'm uh, manipulating back and forth on the microscope, my positioning just because of my handy, my handicap, I don't change. So, you know, I'm, I've learned to be really good with the, the uh, low add a or the low um astigmatism with ais but i also can do it really well with a torque lens as well if they're willing to pay if not i do ais interesting and just for our listeners so the lris really have about a 60 65 percent depth or the equivalent of 600 microns versus arcuate incisions which go 95 percent depth 
but have a coupling ratio of one, which means essentially that the spherical equivalent is unchanged. And then for the toric lenses, like Dr. Stevenson was talking about, you really want to remember that each degree of rotation reduces the effect of astigmatism by 3%. And it may induce higher order aberrations, and that's critical to remember. So if your toric lens rotates 30 degrees, you can expect there to be no change in astigmatism. But if it rotates 90 degrees, that astigmatism is going to double, and that's really important to remember. Absolutely. And the nice thing with IntelliAxis, that lens are makes little marks on the enter uh, capsule. You can see the it goes, lenses are going to rotate in the first 24 hours more than any other time. And you know you can see if the lens is aligned to the IntelliAxis the first morning. So it's really nice. And you could actually reposition it at the slit lamp if you need to. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. How do you reposition it at just the slit lamp? Just go through your side port incision and, oh. and you know, just rotate it. If it's just a small amount. Right. You know, but a lot of times it's right on, or most all the time it's right on. All lenses move a little bit. Sure. You know, three, three degrees maybe, you know, uh, but all of them move a little bit. But, you know, the first day is really good. And I also intraoperatively, after I place a toric lens, I remove all the viscoelastic and I don't overfill the eye with BSS. And then I also have, and I measure it with a tonometer, a barricade tonometer, and then I have them lay flat for 10 minutes in the recovery area. So I don't know, it's just anecdotal to me. And also to in any high astigmatism, it's anecdotal, it's off label. I put a CTR in patients because I feel like it, it locks the lens in place. I don't have a study on it, but any any study that any data that I'm collecting on my patients that any torque lens they all have in any torque they all have CTRs. So I guess I could say, you know, and my rotation rate's very small, and you know, so those are just anecdotal things that I do that work in my hands, and I'm not I'm not, you know, advocating it. It's just something that I've learned after enough experience to my own gestalt, if you will, of how, how I feel that the eye's going to stay, the lens is going to stay in the best position. And also too, with Linsar, they have the way they make an AI, you know, I use a 4.3 radius and it's 90% depth, but because of the angle that it's made, it's straight up and down. It's not angled. It's straight up and down and it's, and I, it's made at 90% and I open it, all of them to 90%. You know, if I make an AI, they're all opened to 90% depth. So, you know, it's the only, if you, it's, it has to be all or none, because if you open some and you don't open others, you don't know what works. And if you're doing an AI, you've got to open it. Absolutely. You know. This just made me remember that I had a case recently of an arcuate incision that started leaking yeah. when I was on call, and we put a suture in it to help seal it. Have you had that happen in practice? Of course, yeah. of course. And I have put su a suture in, and I've also put a bandage lens, and I've also used sealants, and I haven't, they took the sealant off the market, so. Um, so it's not cyanoacrylate glue, it's a it, different- It, it is a glue, oh, but it, that's, okay. that's, that's what it is. And you can use the glue, you could use a, you know, the glue in the operating room and put a bandage lens on, but it's easier just to put a suture in. And the bottom line is if you, it's easy to put in the suture, and it's easy to do it at the time of surgery, but it's really difficult to tell a patient, you know what, I, I should have put the suture in and take them back to the operating room. So to me, better safe than sorry if you feel like it's going to leak. And I test all of mine to make sure they're not leaking. And it's just habit to test them all. With just a fluorescine strip? Fluorescine strip, and I press on the... on the Little provocation yeah, yeah, with a fluorescine strip. See if it strip. makes any difference, yes, absolutely.
It's a really great pearl too, to keep the eye a little softer, have the patient lay for 10 minutes. I think that's a really low cost, low impact way for us to help prevent rotation of the absolutely, pore absolutely. absolutely. Dr. Stevenson, thank you so much. Before we end the episode, I ask all of my guests, if you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in the history of humanity, who would it be? Um, Leonardo da Vinci. And, you know, it's, to me, it's obvious. He, he put science and art together. And it's really what we are. We are really artists of caring for the eye. So to me, I, he's the guy I would, would want to talk to just to pick his brain. That's really beautiful. We are artists of the eye. I love that. That's a motto I'm going to bring into my everyday life. <laughs> thank you. Dr. Stevenson, thank you again for joining us on this episode of The Pupil Pod. And thank you to our listeners. Hope to see you next time. 